when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hi, I'm Helen Holliman, Editor-in-Chief of Munchies, and welcome to the first episode in our LA series of Munchies, the podcast. Today, we're exploring why this booming metropolis has one of the most deliciously diverse food scenes in the U.S. And who better to do that with than a man who needs almost no introduction, Jonathan Gold. He's been driving around L.A. and its outer parts in his beat-up pickup truck for decades, blasting chamber music as he chronicles the city's food carts, trucks, stands, hole-in-the-wall restaurants, and strip mall eateries. He's also the first person ever to be awarded a Pulitzer Prize for food criticism. Gold has pioneered the art of mixing fine dining criticism with densely researched appreciations of things like soup dumplings and neck tacos. These food experiences, which no critic had bothered to seek out before him, have become the benchmarks of L.A. eating culture. Gold also helped Munchies find our own gold when we hired our West Coast staff writer, Javier Cabral, who used to be his food scout. Javier grew up in East L.A. and was one of Gold's devoted fans. As a teen, Cabral used to write a blog called Teenage Glutster. Under Gold's influence, he began to seek out the specialties of his neighborhood, like birria, goat stew, which he had never tried before. Nowadays, getting Jonathan and Javier in one room to watch them discuss their opinions on L.A. restaurant culture is much better than any boxing match. So we did just that. So it's 80 degrees, and we're sitting at the Marisco's Jalisco taco truck on L.A.'s east side. Gold considers the truck's owner, Raul Ortega, a rock star among taco chefs. People drive here from far and wide around the city to order Ortega's spicy shrimp cocktail, aguachile, his octopus ceviche, and in particular, the Tacos Dorados de Camarones, crunchy shrimp tacos, which are one of the most extraordinary things you can eat. We recorded this interview back in February, right before City of Gold, the documentary about his work as a food critic, came out. Over tacos, we talked about LA's changing food scene and how technology has changed food culture, if at all. We also discussed why he knows Dr. Dre so well. Well, so you're also from LA, obviously. Yeah. Thank you. I was just going to ask for a fork. Um, I mean, you've obviously, you've been writing for years before food about music and theater and mm -hmm. art and tell me about I mean one of the first things you got into was something similarly to you Javier which is punk music well I was part of the punk scene in LA um, from about 78 um, but it was, it was going to shows and being in bands I didn't I didn't really write about it when I started writing about music I have a degree in music from UCLA um, I wrote about classical music I was a classical music critic for the LA Weekly when I was you know 23 or something and there was an there were working as a proofreader basically and there were, and there was um, editorial meeting they were going to do a restaurant issue they asked if anybody wanted to edit it and I raised my hand because 
you know, food, food was interesting, and it meant I got to take my friends out for free. <laughs> <laughs> That's always a perk. <laughs> and so for, you know, years after that, you know, I'd, I'd, go, I'd go to the show, and then I'd write about what I ate on the way to the show, and I'd write about what happened at the show. And Can we talk about your nickname, um, Nervous Cuz? <laughs> um... Yeah, I, I think I think Drake came up with that. I mean, I started writing about uh, gangst. Sorry, I started writing about uh, hip hop in Los Angeles pretty early on um, because the punk scene around '84, '85 had gotten dull. It was obvious that you know bands like The Replacements, the sort of which were less interesting to me, were what was happening rather than the sort of you know, arty, noisy stuff, and there, there was so much energy in the shows I was going to. You know, you know, down on Crenshaw, down at Skateland and Compton, down, and it was exciting because nobody, nobody was writing about alley hip hop. I mean, nobody was right. You'd have things like Uncle Jam's Army, which was an early crew that had shows at the sports arena and 14,000 people would show up and nobody had heard of them. You had people, you know, selling half a million records out of the trunks of the car. Like, t Too Short would be a good example probably. And this huge mixtape culture, which was not unlike the punk rock mixtape culture, it was exciting to do. And um, I did a piece on Easy E early on. A little bit after I did Boys in the Hood because it was completely inescapable in Los Angeles. You couldn't drive down the street with without hearing them. I mean, you know, later Dre said that he put that on so he'd know when somebody was, you know, bumping his. <laughs> and um, I started meeting with the band at uh, Junior's Deli in Westwood of all places and sometimes you go there and like Arm and Hammer the you know billionaire industrialist would be like sitting at the counter and there'd be Dr. Dre and be really interesting juxtaposition but uh, I'm, I'm not sure where Nervous Cuz came from I think <laughs> maybe I seem nervous to them I don't know <laughs> I was going to say do you feel like it's accurate like where does that come from well, I was always there, right? There's this... It's strange because so, that world was so solidly African-American, but there, were, there was always, like, you know, the hairy studio engineer <laughs> sitting around someplace, and there were always the, you know, sort of suits that came in and out, sort of, and, and I was sitting in a corner, and I guess I did that in like LA hip hop things for long enough that they got used to me. So I don't I don't know if it was justified or not, but it certainly amused them to call me that. <laughs> yeah, I think I was reading that you said once that there was a time when you spent more time with the two of them than your own family. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there was a point where um, after the after Snoop's bodyguard, you know, 
shot the shot the gangbanger. Um, um, I s sort of I did a lot of pieces on them that day because Suge trusted me, and I'm not sure whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> Can you guys describe how you two first met? Um. When I was the restaurant critic at the, wasn't the LA Weekly still? Mm -hmm. 11 years ago. <coughs> 10 years ago. 11, 10. Yeah. Uh, he, he used to write me letters. And, you know, I, I used to respond to him sometimes. What, what kind of letters? I mean, what was the first letter that you remember writing to Jonathan? Do you remember? Mm-mm. That you wanted to be a food writer. You told me, sometimes you told me about you must have told me about places that you like. Yeah. Well, I first found out, uh, I first found out of John the Gold because I lived in East LA and I would commute via the bus to Alhambra, which is what like seven miles yeah, away. Yeah. And I would take the bus and I would read LA Weekly to find out what local punk shows were playing. And then, you know, there was there were there were really long bus rides. So I, I just would read the rest of it, and I started reading his writing. And I'm like, I want to do this too. This is pretty cool. So I Googled it, but you know, there's no clear-cut way to become a food writer. And Hugh John and Gold, um, that's when I sent them my first letter, asking them, how the hell do you become a food writer? And, and I think what I told you is to like, know one thing better than anything else. And to, had you already, did you already have your blog by then? But but you know I said like keep doing it on the blog because if it's great everybody you know people will notice it and you know that that's what happened. Makes sense. Well, I mean it's kind of a question for both of you guys, but you know you both are from here and thinking about sort of you know Jonathan, you've been in the game much longer than Javier, but your impressions of how food in LA has shifted from when you started to kind of where it is now and same for you Javier well when I first started writing about it um, I obviously did mostly taco stands and Chinese restaurants that cost for a while but I became the mainstream critic for a big magazine pretty quickly and a lot of the restaurants I was going into review you know I went with my friends who were probably like wearing one pair of pants I mean, the one pair of pants that they owned. And um, I sort of felt as if I was getting away with something if they let me through the door, much less, um, you know, coming in with the sense of superiority of what, over what I was experiencing. And I think in a certain way that, that informs things. Also, the way that restaurants have changed, I think, is that maybe a couple years before I started reviewing, all the big places were, you know, Lone Law. They were all French places. They all came from the same group of people. Uh, the dishes they were doing weren't incredibly dissimilar from one another. Though, you know, of course, California cuisine was a huge thing, and it started in Los Angeles and in Berkeley. And th that was rebelling against food in its own way. But the idea of what a good restaurant was was still 
pretty stolid. There was an era where you'd go to a restaurant, you know, a restaurant that would get reviews in big publications, you know, sort of what you consider an important place, and they'd have a Thai noodle dish on the menu because fusion is what you did in the 80s. And there'd be the best Thai noodles in North America five miles down the street, and they wouldn't bother to go. You know, they'd get the recipe from a book or somebody would tell them about it, or maybe they'd had a fun trip to Thailand. And now they have to go. There's not a chef here that is unaware of what's going on in the San Gabriel Valley or Thai Town or <coughs> Bell. That oh, the best energy in restaurants right now, I think, is coming from second second generation people, people who were you know chefs who were maybe the children of sh people who were chefs or in the food business in some way, um, you know, did the whole chef school thing, trained at, you know, important restaurants in New York and in France, came back and used their skills and their knowledge to sort of reinterpret the flavors they'd grown up on instead of, you know, chefs from sort of the mainstream culture attempting to pull flavors into their cooking as almost an exotic counterpoint. I can't top that. Uh, I have, I mean, <laughs> well, you know, I, I have like a, a personal, I feel like I have a personal relationship with LA restaurants and the restaurant scene just because, you know, when I first started, I wasn't even like of drinking age. So I would, a lot, a lot of the, a lot, a lot of my first experiences with like fancy places uh, in the West side was when I would, when I would get invited for them. Uh, when I would get invited to them and I would just get like super loaded and on, on those bus rides back I would re I would really reflect on like what I just ate and the food and you know I feel I feel a lot of it I mean has a lot to do with Jonathan Gold and everything he's done just with the uh, because he he isolated like the regional factor in, in food here um, so you know like for example like someone will know that this dish is a Jalisco style uh, shrimp taco uh, and someone will know that another place is a, is a Sinaloa style, and so on and so on with Chinese food, which he's obviously covered a lot. And it seems like as if it couldn't be like a, like even more nerdy and regional, but it's still it's continuing to get even more regional. Um, and then on, on the other hand, you you do have like yeah like th those second generation chefs like like Eddie Ruiz, Corazón y Miel, you know like uh, um, like Ray Garcia, Broken Spanish, like uh, Carlos Salgado. Yeah, like Carlos Salgado especially. And it's, it's definitely powered, I think, by like the, the, the Mexican cuisine. A lot of it is. Just because it's, it's, you know, it's, I guess, this used to be Mexico, so. And <coughs> I, I wrote a piece, I, and I guess, it was, I guess it was in the 90s, but it doesn't seem like that long ago, where I, I suggested half tongue-in-cheek, half not that... Um, you know, Mexican restaurants in Los Angeles should be legally required to serve at least two dishes from their village. <laughs> because everywhere you went, it was the same, you know, tacos, tostadas, enchiladas, chilenos. And that lost completely unnecessary now because everybody's doing that. It, the excitement is in the regionality, in the in the chefs and the cooks and the restaurateurs attempting to bring the flavors that they grew up on 
to Los Angeles in the form that they remember them. And it's not necessarily a matter of authenticity, which is a word that comes up a lot, because you know the idea of what's authentic always changes. Like, I mean, these tacos we're having here, San Juan del Lago, is it's inland. It's not even close to the sea. It's a it's like a relig- religious pilgrimage town, and yet shrimp tacos are the thing, right? So it's obviously introduced somewhere. Some, somewhere somebody came up with the idea of doing it, and it's spread. Yeah, these tacos have, have inspired imposters. Uh, and throughout this whole, I would say just in the, na- in the neighborhood of Boyle Heights, there's probably at least, what, John, and like five, seven other places yeah. that do like this. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. These style of shrimp tacos that Raul innovated? Well, I, I some... I think he will admit at some points that he didn't even do it, that, you know, that Cuatro Vientos down the street yeah. did them first. Well, that, that, there's some drama and there. And that like he worked sure. there and there's like a family. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's, like, there's some kind of like rivalry. <laughs> there's, so there's two food trucks. This is, this is a Marisco Jalisco and the one uh, a few feet away called the Marisco Cuatro Vientos. <laughs> and they both specialize in the same dish. Uh, now, who started it? Who knows? Yeah, well, I was, when we were coming over mm-hmm. here, I was saying that there was a... Uh, a, a truck, literally a giant semi, pulled up in the middle of the street, double parked, mm-hmm. and walked over. I feel like he got some from both trucks. Well, that's funny. So he clearly, you know, was neutral about it. But um, speaking of trucks, I mean, you obviously have like a formula down probably at this point in your career, but like thinking about just getting in your car on an average week, mm-hmm. I mean, at this point, like, you know, you've uncovered hundreds upon hundreds of like amazing gems all over this entire beautiful geography of desert but i mean at this point like how do you continue to do it and keep discovering things it's not a desert by the way it's a mediterranean climate oh (laughs) we take offense at that here (laughs) i'm from texas so it's 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 all desert to me okay (laughs) um it's May I say that on the one hand, it's great to be able to walk into a place and experience not just a dish you haven't had, but an entire cuisine whose existence you hadn't contemplated. And on the other hand, it's so much harder than it used to be. I mean, it's, it used to be I had the entire San Gabriel Valley to myself. I mostly had East LA and definitely South LA to myself. Nobody else was writing about it. And now if a, pl- now if a place opens in you know, San Gabriel with an untranslated menu serving a weird kind of, you know, steamed corn pudding. You know, in the first week there will be, you know, two blog entries and four Yelp posts. <coughs> and a chowhound thread on it. That must be really challenging. <laughs> it's fun. It makes it harder. Yeah. 
people's and there are definitely people who spend these days more time like tooling around in their trucks than I do because mm-hmm. I'm the you know the mainstream critic for the um, for the big you know West Coast newspaper and I'm expected to do you know the the big openings and mm-hmm. well yeah I mean thinking back to like your time in New York you know obviously it's very different cities but if you could in any way think of the obvious differences to you like what would those things be well my, my time in new york was as the restaurant critic for gourmet magazine which was sort of the premier food magazine in the world at that time and i was writing about definitely the restaurants for rich people and i actually left because i got they were wonderful, but they were the same in some senses, and the same people were eating at them. And I sort of got tired of writing about the amusements of the rich, so I came back. But <coughs> in terms of sheer restaurant firepower, though I hate to use the word, I mean, New York is obviously unmatched. Um, you know, only Tokyo comes close that if you were going to write about the best 50 restaurants of a certain type in the country, I mean, 40 of them would be in Manhattan. Um, But when you're looking outside the world of expensive count dining, it become, things become a little thinner on the ground. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of it is the economic thing, probably, and maybe a bigger part of it is that in New York everybody takes subways right I mean everybody you know walks on streets with all kinds of people you're aware of who lives there and in LA it's because it is so gigantic and spread out and the communities here are so big it's possible to spend you know most of your life not interacting with anybody outside of your group which I think is bad for the common wheel maybe but it's really good for food because it means that if you go to a place in Koreatown you're usually getting somebody who's just cooking what they cook and doesn't care if you're Korean or not whereas in New York my experience is that they're always anticipating what somebody who's not them would want to eat instead of just serving what they serve. Mm-hmm. I have another oyster. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you're, you democratized food writing. Um, and I think that, you know, thinking about just when I was much younger, I was the nerd on e-gullet. I was the nerd on Chowhound. Mm. I mean, Javier and I, the first time I met Javier, we were talking about like e-gullet posts that we did when we were young, much younger. <laughs> but fast forward to now, I mean, just thinking about people across this country, like, you know, as eaters, I think people are so much more um, adjusted or expect food sites and food writing. And um, what are your impressions of what you think of the diner now well in certain ways food has become pop culture in the way that it never was before I mean obviously people were you know very attached to their own food you know you spent time in Texas New Orleans those are two places where that's really strong but 
in a certain way, food is almost taking the place that rock and roll did when I was growing up, right? Because you have people in tribes, you have Team Vegan, and you have uh, you have Team Nose to Tail, and you have Team Mexican Authenticity, and you have Team Sushi, and you and there's some overlap between them, but there are people who are just so passionate about sushi or so passionate about ramen or so passionate about not having a speck of anything that had ever come close to an animal (laughs) 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 into anything they put into their mouths. And and they go to the same places and they hang out with with one another and they have vlogs and... Or does anybody have vlogs anymore? They have tumblers. Yeah. <laughs> and there's so there's so much energy in that. There are, you know, twenty year olds excited about new expensive restaurants opening. And I can say as a twenty year old, you know, going into, you know, L'Hermitage, taking the bus there and feeling like I was a alien interloper (laughs) do you feel like you know with the kind of age of the internet that we're in now and how connected we are do you feel like food and why it might be the new like pop culture thing has anything to do with where technology is I mean it might there's I mean, sir, you go to so many people's Instagram feeds, even people who have nothing to do with food, and there's like dish after dish after dish after dish after dish, and you know, which I do not think is what the inventors of the medium had in mind. But people who don't speak the same language and come come from completely different parts of the world and different cultural backgrounds can sit and look at a picture of, you know, those, you know, raked oysters and feel something and mean something to them. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That, that food always has a way of affecting us viscerally and emotionally because it conjures feelings that we all have. And really, it's the only bodily function we can write about without sensors getting involved. It's <laughs> a good point, too. Mm. <laughs> Where, I mean, you know, in terms of both of you and your eating habits with just eating out a lot, do you, is there ever a day where you just try to stick to, like, cereal or neutral foods? Um, there are some times that I do, but... <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think I have the luxury to do that. I mean, a, a lot of writers will talk about being a, behind in their writing, but I so often feel like I'm behind in my eating. <laughs> and I mean, you look at me. I'm not a. I'm not a small person. I go to the gym five days a week. I don't look like somebody who goes to the gym five days a week. So, I'm fat, but I can lift heavy things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, what do you think of? I mean, if we could describe food in 2016, just as a snapshot of culture what do you what do you think it's saying about the world right now the way that 2016 is shaping up it seems that things are more vegetable driven not necessarily vegetarian but 
You might have a carrot as your main course. I mean, actually, I'm not sure there's a new restaurant in Los Angeles that doesn't have roast carrots on the menu. It seems to be like a, a law. La- two years ago was charred Brussels sprouts. Last year, what was it last year? Uh, Kale salad. Okay. Uh, that's even older. I that's think. even. <laughs> well, like back to your carrot comment, you know, there's yeah. even that carrot hot dog that Neil that Neil Fraser's doing at Fritzy's. Yeah. Have you had it? Yeah. Yeah, I had it at the, at it the at farmer's market. No, it's a carrot on a bun. <laughs> Please. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I mean, it's a good carrot. I know he sous vide it with good things. and It's a, it's a, it's a carrot on a bun. <laughs> he, he is fooling no one. But then I guess, like, it's the idea you don't have to fool anyone, that you have, that it's okay to serve a carrot as a carrot. That... Uh, I hate to name a New York restaurant, but like what Brokelli's doing at Superiority Burger with his veggie burger, it's not trying to mimic the texture of a hamburger. It's something different. It has a few of the umami things going on. It has a few of the taste profiles that are the same. But he's not trying to fool you that this is a hamburger with meat in it. And it doesn't matter anymore. Um fermentation is becoming sort of the the hot technique people seem to be leaving sous vide behind a little bit um but i'd say the tendency to eat lower on the food chain would be what's happening although we still haven't reached peak steakhouse it's uh you know it's it's obviously a quandary <laughs> I love a good steakhouse. What, why is LA the greatest food city in the world? This is a question for both of you. <laughs> LA is probably not the greatest fine dining food city in the world, but I don't think that there is a city anywhere else on the planet where so many highly developed food cultures in very, very close to their peak forms. Not only exist side by side, but like collide and create things that never existed before. The creativity here is super great and people are willing to try things. Uh, I think uh, LA has the best food city because people can open up restaurants here if they want to. It's still affordable. Uh, although it's quickly changing, but that kind of freedom, you know, everybody has like a fantasy of like opening up a restaurant and because LA is so vast, you can, you can do it if you work hard towards that. And because of that, you know, you're going to open up whatever, you know, like if you want to do like a, I just got like a, 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 a I just found out of a, of a bar, of a Cambodian barber in Long Beach because they have a, they have a, like a little Cambodia there and he's opening up like a, a Cambodian restaurant after after he wanted like, he after he thought about it his whole life mm-hmm. so that kind of freedom to be able to do that on a on a whim is i, I feel is why la has some really good food and uh, regional food great food I, I do this uh 101 list you know every year of the the best restaurants in la and the number two this year was of a place that was started as a taco truck and located to sort of a grungy location in a hipster mall in suburban Orange County. It's the last thing the 
place in the world you would expect to find great cooking, but there it is. That wraps up our interview with Jonathan Gold. Thanks so much to Raul Ortega of Morisco's Jalisco for letting us eat all of those shrimp tacos, which were insane. Thank you so much to Javier Cabral at Munchies for joining us. And if you haven't seen City of Gold, the documentary about Jonathan Gold, visit cityofgolddoc.com to find out where to watch it. On the next episode from our L.A. series of Munchies the Podcast... One of the things that I think people find impenetrable about Los Angeles is that it seems like it has no history. But if you literally look at anything for more than five minutes, if you Google it, you know, you'll find out that, oh, this is where they filmed such and such, or this is where this amazing thing happened, or this was built by, like, a lunatic in the 1920s, or whatever. Like, (laughs) there's a lot of secret history here. We talked to the duo behind the band Yacht about L.A.'s mysterious history and the restaurants that exist in unusual spaces. So until then, get all of our delicious Munchies content at munchies.tv. Peep us at Munchies on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, too. And if you like the show, go rate us on iTunes. It really helps us out. I'm Helen Holliman. I'll catch y'all on the L.A. freeway. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.